In these last few verses of 1 John, John is trying to do something for us. He's trying to wrap it all up, and he's trying to tell us the purpose for his writing in verse 13, and then how to apply that purpose in our lives in the remaining of his letter. And why does John write? He writes not to persuade unbelievers of the truth of the Christian faith. That's what his gospel is about. That's what John's gospel is written for. But he writes this letter instead to strengthen Christian believers who may be tempted to doubt. Have you ever been tempted to doubt? It's okay. And, and this is why we have 1 John chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Why? Verse 13. So that those who believe in the name of the Son of God can know that we have eternal life. But the question is this, now that we have this assurance, what do we do with it? Does anyone out there know what this thing is on the screen? Is it a hair pick? Is it, what, what in the world is that thing? I don't know if you can see the, the lettering on the handle, but it says pampered chef. So I'm sure all you pampered chef experts out there know exactly what this thing is. But for the rest of us, I'm like, what in the world? Does it some sort of electric device? I, I don't know. Well, for the rest of us, it is a hold-in slice. Of course. Of course it is. The hold-in slice protects your nails and your fingernails when you're cutting food, and it allows you to cut all the way down to the very end of the food without any waste. It has a sturdy handle and stainless steel prongs to keep food steady in your hands while slicing, and it's dishwasher safe. Aren't you glad to know that you can get a Holden slice and now you know what to do with it? Well, the question that John is posing for us is now that you have assurance of everlasting life through faith in the Son who came to secure life for you, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And here's what John tells us. Having assurance of eternal life produces confidence in prayer and confidence in Purity, the purity that we have in Christ. And so to live out the implications of the assured life that we have, we've got to do two more things, North Roanoke. First, we must practice God's presence by praying according to his will. And secondly, we must persist in his purity. First, we've got to practice the presence of God Praying according to his will. Verse 14, though most translations exclude it, includes this little connection word, and. And in the Greek, it's okay to start a, word, a sentence with the word and. Students, if you want to drive your grammar teacher crazy, start a sentence with the word and. But in the Greek, it's okay. And what John is, is showing us is that verse 14 flows directly from verse 13. And because you have the everlasting life and eternal life in the Son, this is the confidence that you have. D Danny Aiken says this, It is the gift of eternal life that allows the believer to come directly before God with boldness or confidence. You know, one of the greatest blessings of having eternal life is having the connection with God restored that was, He was intending you to have from the very beginning. You remember when Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the cool of the day and they walked with the Lord. To have that level of intimacy and fellowship with God is exactly why Christ has come so that we could have that connection restored. This same word confidence occurs in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 where the author of Hebrews says, We have confidence to enter the holy place. Why? Because of the blood 
of Jesus. The reality is we were made for connection to God. The Westminster Confession says it this way, man's chief end, our ultimate purpose, the reason we exist is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And one of the primary ways that we enjoy the God who made us and blessed us and made us His own by coming and dying for us is by communing with Him in prayer. This confidence that we have is, look at verse 14, it is before Him. It is in His presence. And I had a professor at Southeastern who said, praying is practicing the presence of God. Because it is In prayer, where we become familiar with our Maker and our Savior and His mission as we meditate upon His Word and then pray according to His will. Prayer is the place where the needs of our lives and our community and our workplace and our church intersect with the unlimited provision and power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so often we live our lives with a bunch of needs and desires over here and anxieties and then there's Jesus over here and yes he indwells me but we never connect the two in prayer grounded in his word. And the reality is the only way to enjoy a salvation that comes comes from God is to enjoy the God who is your salvation. The only way to enjoy the God who is your salvation is to hear from him, to commune with him, and to talk with him. And the Bible calls this little thing, it is called prayer. I don't know about you, but I don't like dropped calls. And when I lived in Raleigh for the first four years of my life, I had AT&T. Now, I lived in the city of Raleigh. It's the state capital, okay? million people in Wake County. Well, I lived down in a little river basin about as far away as you could get from the two closest towers. And so for the first four years of my life, because I got into one of those recurring contracts that if you break it, there's penalties and it was all bundled together. For the first four years of my life, rain, sleet, snow, hail, 105 or five below, I had to walk out to the top of my driveway to use my cell phone. And they kept telling me, we're going to build a tower. We're going to build a tower. We're going to build a tower. Mr. Palmer, we appreciate your service. As soon as I could drop that contract, I dropped it like a bad hat because I kept dropping calls. And I didn't want to drop calls. Aren't you glad to know? That the God who made us his own, who came and left heaven to come to earth to make us his own, always hears us. We have a connection that can never be severed. We don't, we're not limited in our texts. We don't have just a weekend plan. We have constant access before God the Father through the blood of Jesus shed for us. And what is it that John urges us to do with this connection? Verse 14, we keep on listening. That's exactly what is implied by praying according to the will of God. You can't pray according to the will of someone if you don't know what their will is. How is it that we listen to God? We come and we hear his word preached. We get plugged into a Sunday school class and we share the needs and concerns of our lives. And we allow others who have sat under the ministry of the word to speak truth into our lives. We keep on listening for the will of God. But secondly, we must keep on asking Verses 14 and 15, the word ask appears, and it's not something we just do occasionally. It's written in such a way that suggests we keep on bringing our request to God. To ask means to beg or to call for, to crave something with intensity. It is something that we desire from the wellspring of communion with God. As we see his will and we know who he is and we say, God, we need that to happen. And we call out to him in prayer with confidence. And we call out with confidence because of what John tells us. 
in verse 15. We know that we will keep on having what we ask for because we know that he hears us. There's no time that the God who holds us does not hear us. And the word hear means not just to hear, right? It's not like, oh, that's a nice idea. It means to hear and to respond. When we pray according to God's will, when we ask according to God's will, we serve a God who will keep on meeting our requests and granting our prayers that are prayed according to His will. Now, when I went to Raleigh, I had a dumb phone. But now we've got smartphones. And the advantage of smartphones is that you can get work done anywhere at any time. But the disadvantage of smartphones is that you can get work done anywhere at any time. And I'll be sitting with my children on my lap. I'll finally get home and then buzz, buzz, bzz. I just use the vibrate. No dinging. I can't handle the ding. But bzz, bzz, bzz. And sometimes Stacey would be like, what in the world is going on? And the reality is I'll be there with my kids on my lap and they'll, they'll say something, but I'm not really hearing them because all I can hear is the noise of, of what's out there that I'm connected to through this little phone. But here's the good news. God the Father is a much better father than your pastor. God the Father can hear from all of his children all at once and he can hear them deeply and intimately and know exactly the application of his will to your life. And this knowledge that we have that's, that's categorized in 14 and 15 is, is a knowledge that is a fixed reality. We've talked a lot about the perfect tense over the last, through, uh, last several sermons here through 1 John. The perfect tense is, is something that has happened that cannot be undone. There is a fixed reality between our asking according to God's will, God's hearing, and our receiving what it is that we've asked for. So let me ask you a question. Why aren't we praying? What, what prevents us from coming to our Heavenly Father in prayer? It's right there in the Scriptures. If you've got everlasting Life in the sun, come before him with your requests according to his will and watch him move and watch him work in your life. Now, I, I suspect that some of us, here, here's what happens in our life. Well, I'm not exactly sure what the will of God is. And so you check out. But while that may be true at times, the reality is we know a whole lot more about God's will than we let on. And I, I submit to you that oftentimes I'm not sure what God's will is, is just a cop out. Because we do know what God's will is. Do you want to know what God's will is this morning? Here's just a sampling that I took from scripture. God wants our joy to be full. You ever having a bad day? Lord, would you make my joy complete today? God wants us to serve him with gladness, to love one another as Christ loved us. He does not want us to grow weary in the work of doing good. He wants our marriages to be strong. He wants our children to trust in him and live for him. He wants our church to live in such a way that we abide by his principles and put the glory of Christ on display. He wants us to have the strength to obey him even when it costs us something. Scratch that. He wants us to have the strength to obey even when it costs us everything. God wants us to put our love for Christ and the gospel and his church ahead of any of our personal preferences. He wants our co-workers to be saved. He wants us to have joy in the midst of suffering. He wants us to give more generous 
vociferously than Muslims or Mormons or Pharisees. He wants us to win the world to his love through the love that we know right here in the family of faith. He wants our city, the Roanoke Valley, to recognize he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now so that they won't acknowledge it for the first time later and then be cast out into utter, utter darkness. God wants us to prove the realities and the blessing and the superiority of the garden life that he makes real right here in our church because we live in the midst of a dark, desolate, dry, dying wilderness. But his life, his fertility, his goodness, his wholeness, his peace is right here among us. God wants us to make disciples of all nations. He wants us to see the dead made alive in Christ. And he wants us to be holy as he is holy and to be pure as Christ is pure. If we know, if we know that we have this life eternal in Christ the Son, we've got to practice the presence of God. We've got to come before Him and pray according to His will and stop saying, well, I don't know what your will is. Dive into His Word, figure out His will, and pray, Thy will be done. I'll tell you this, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to flesh out, but I know that God wants us to be more effective for his kingdom in the future than we've ever been in the past. That's no, that's no knock on the past. That's just confidence in the Christ who's leading us into the future. He wants us to minister to kids and to preschoolers in ways that we never have. He wants us to serve uh, dropouts and people who are imprisoned right now and people who are addicted to drugs and he wants to see the his kingdom come in the Roanoke Valley on earth as it is in heaven and he wants to use us as a part of that he wants to do that you don't have to ask God do you want to do that just read the word he's not willing that any should perish he wants to save all and he wants to use you in the process we must practice his presence in prayer. But secondly, the implications of this assurance of everlasting life are that we must, uh, must persist in his purity. Verses 16 through 21. We must persist in his purity. The only reason that we are pure is because Christ, who is pure, made us his. There's no purity we have apart from Christ, which means we must remain in or abide in Christ. And John is once again reminding us of that concept. Colin Cruz says this, John amplifies the theme of prayer by applying the general statements about prayer in 14 and 15 to the particular need of believers who fall into sin. It's the prayer of intercession. Whenever you should see someone in your family sinning, you will ask for him. It's like a command. If you have kids and you say, son, you will change your clothes. Son, you will clean your room. That's how John is using the future tense. When you see a brother or a sister fall into sin, you will get on it. Now, it doesn't mean, right, that you're, you're looking. You're, it doesn't mean you're walking up. Hey, Pastor Jake, I saw that bad attitude deep down in your heart. Are you, are you wrestling today with some bad attitude? It doesn't mean you're like kamikaze style trying to go find sinners everywhere but when you see a brother stumble when you see a sister stumble when it's something that your eyes see guess what you're supposed to do you're not supposed to ignore it you're not supposed to sweep it under the rug and never talk about it again you're supposed to address them about it that's what Matthew 18 says 
And you're supposed to address them about it redemptively with a desire and a will to pray. Because here's what happens when a brother sees a brother fall into sin and he approaches him in humility. And he says, I've done the best to remove the log from my eye. Let's pray about the speck in your eye. When they come together and they pray to a God who hears and who forgives, they both walk away with incredible freedom and assurance. And Satan can't get a stronghold in this family of faith if we continue to act like that. We intercede for one another. John continues in verse 17. He tells us all unrighteousness is sin and there's a sin that's not leading to death. Well, what in the world is the sin that doesn't lead to death and that does lead to death? The sin that doesn't lead to death is the sin that's already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. For those of us who belong to Jesus, sins past, present, and future have been bought and paid for and covered by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So every sin does lead to death except one, the sins which are paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And so when John in 17, what happens to us, church, is we do fall, we do sin, we do fail, and then, guess what? We just close up shop. Well, I'll stop going to church. Well, I'll stop talking to those Christian people because they might know about me. Well, I, I, I feel conviction anytime I go close to the things of God, and I don't want to deal with that. And here's what John is saying. There is a sin not leading to death, and it's the sin of the one who's already been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. Though we may fall into sin from time to time, our sins do not lead to death if Christ is ours and we are Christ. And here's the bottom line. Some of you need to come clean this morning. You, you come to church and you touch home plate, just enough to show your face, but you know that deep down in your soul there's, there's stuff that's just messed up that you just need to pour out to God, let Him deal with it, and then move on with confidence and assurance in the will of God. Now what then is the sin that leads to death? The sin that leads to death is this. It's those who totally reject the gospel again and again and again and again. In John's context, there are some people who heard the gospel they got close to the church. They even acted like believers for a while. And then they left. And they said, we can go beyond what Jesus offers us. As Plummer writes, it is possible to close the heart against the influences of God's spirit so obstinately and persistently that repentance becomes a moral impossibility. And John says, I'm not commanding this, but you don't even have to keep praying for such people. The people who've had consistent exposure to the gospel over and over and over again and they've rejected it, God's mission is moving to those who still haven't even yet heard. There's 3.5 billion people in the world today who do not yet know the, even the name of Jesus. There are billions of people in this world who could walk for a month and not see a Christian, a church, or a Bible. And John is saying, let's pray for those people. And as we pray for those people, let's also pray about our own selves and our own purity. Because the church should spend at least as much time praying about her own purity as she prays for those that she's tried to reach again and again and again without success. Because the world isn't going to crave the distinctiveness of the Christian life if the distinctiveness of the Christian life is not lived out here. The world's not going to know the, be the beauty of the purity of Jesus if we don't prize Jesus who is pure. So we've, we've got to pray about our sin, church. But secondly, we've got to rest in what we have known. Look at 18, 19, and 20. 
We know, we know, we know. What do we know? We know that we cannot keep on sinning because the one who is eternally begotten of God has made us a son of God. Verse 18. Verse 19. We know that the world's system and that the world's values are opposed to the church. Why? Because they lie in the power or the influence of the evil one. And then verse 20. We know that we know. Did you see that? Look at verse 20 again. I love verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know. There's a lot of knowing in there. A lot of knowing and understanding. Here's, here's what we know. We know that we understand that we know that we are in God the Father and in His Son. How is it that we know that we know that we know? Because He gave us understanding. The word literally means a mind or a way of thinking. Colin Cruz says it this way, through the agency of the Spirit, a new and real spiritual existence is that which belongs to believers. There's no being in God without being in His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says it just like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. We have been given the mind of Christ. There is a knowledge of who Christ is and the purity that he has in opposition to what the world values that so permeates our existence that we cannot run from it, but we must be wrapped up in it. You've got to continue to appropriate what you have known from the beginning of your salvation. You are Christ. Christ is yours. But finally, verse 21. We must guard ourselves from idols. Now, if you've been tracking with us from 1 John 1.1 until today, you would readily acknowledge that the word idols does not occur anywhere else in this book. We've read about believing in the Father and the Son. We've read about loving the brothers and loving the brothers like we love Christ and all these assurances and now John drops idolatry in our lap. What in the world are you doing, John? What does this have to do with anything? And the answer is everything. Because what is it that threatens your ability to love Christ? but that which you want to esteem more than Christ. What is it that would get in the way of you loving the church the way that God loves the church, but something that you elevate above church and the Son of God? Idolatry. It's interesting that John doesn't just say the idol, and if he had just said the idol, it would be what? Worshiping something beyond Jesus, specifically the, the heretics who had left the church, who had put something in addition to Jesus. But the reality is there's all sorts of idols that threaten the church and our effectiveness of the body of Christ. John Calvin said the mind is a perpetual forge of idols. Today we say it this way, it's an idol-making factory. Westcott says, idols are anything that occupies the place that's due God. These idols, these false gods, they can be material or immaterial. And in the church, statistically, we know a lot about idolatry, don't we? We know 
that the average Southern Baptist will give less than 2.5% of their income for the church or any missions causes in a year's time. The God of money has a hold on the church. We know that the God of misdirected sex has a hold on the church. I just read a survey from Barna last night. 77% of Christian men age 18 to 49 will log on and look at something that does not edify Christ and detracts them from the purity of Christ within the next month. 77% of self-proclaimed Christian men. Here's the reality. There are as many idols as there are evil imaginations of the fallen mind. It's everywhere. And this morning, as we close, I want to help us identify some of the more subtle idols that can dwell within our hearts. Last week, we learned that the perfect love of God is is experienced in the imperfect church. So here's a question. What prevents you from getting engaged in church life? What what prevents you from diving in with both feet or head first? From getting involved in a Sunday school class and sharing the struggles of your life in an open group sharing time? From participating in a prayer meeting? What is holding you back? What is allowing you to give the church the Heisman? What is it? We we like to keep things at a safe distance. And and I submit to you this morning that there are some of us here who need to stop just being Sunday morning Christians. We need to lay down the idols of comfort and anonymity. We like to be comfortable, don't we? Get close, but not too close. I like to be anonymous. They won't ever know who I am. As long as the preacher knows my face but doesn't know my name, then I'm okay. Jesus wants you to get real close and personal. But secondly, some of you are on the opposite side of that spectrum. Some of you are in this church building more often than I am. And and here's what can happen to us. We can begin to make an idol of the service that we render to God and worship the service rather than the God who enlisted us in His service. I want you to think for a moment about any positions that you hold or programs in which you serve or any preferences that you hold dear. Think church music. What what if God modified your preferences? What if He removed you from that position? What if he deployed you somewhere else? What if he took a program and said, that's not even going to happen here anymore. We're going to do something else. Those sorts of questions begin to unearth idols that remain deep within our heart that we didn't even see. What are the things that you would would hinder your worship of Christ if, if they were removed? See, here's the deal. The human heart is so desperately wicked that we can turn even our service in Jesus' name into service in our name and for ourselves. So what are we going to do about this, church? What are we going to do about John's challenge in verse 21 of chapter 5? His little postscript at the end of his letter that we really could have just knocked that off, right? And we would have understood the letter. What are we going to do with the P.S.? Are we going to pay attention to it? Or are we just going to move on with our lives and go eat Mother's Day lunch? Because i got to tell you, the reason I preach is because I believe that the Word of God explained can change lives. And I believe the Word of God explained can change your life. 
It can change the quality of your Christian experience from this day until that day when you see him face to face. And I want that to happen for some of you today. So what is the sin that you've seen in your life that you need to lay down and confess? What is the idol that you're clinging to more tightly than you're clinging to Christ himself? I want to invite you to come this morning and don't be embarrassed. I want to invite you to come and just pray. Nobody's going to quiz you about what you're praying about. If you want to pray with me about it or Pastor Dell about it or any other deacon about it, we will pray with you. Some of you say, I can't walk up there for a variety of reasons. Write it on a communication card. Pastor Daniel, call me this week. I need you to do what 1 John 5, 16 says. I need you to pray with me about my sin. There's a sin pattern in my life, and I want it broken today so that I can enjoy the freedom and the fullness and the boldness and the confidence before Christ that I won't have until this sin is dealt with. And I need to sit in your office, and I need to cry over my sin, and I need to let the Spirit of God get to victory in my life again. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus died for it. He paid for it. And the idolatry can be banished and broken because the cross is real and God the Son died for you. So this morning, I don't know what your hesitation, lay it down for the one who laid down his life for you. Let's pray. God, we need you. We confess that our hearts are idol-making factories. God, we see new stuff. We see new things. We, we see twistedness in our society that for some reason attracts our attention. And we confess, God, we want our attention to be fixed on you and your will and your mission. And for those of us this morning who've been smacked in the face by the Spirit of God with something that's interrupting that, we say to you, heal us in Jesus' name as we come. Amen.